Hello, friends. Welcome to the last night of Focus. Oh, yeah, we can all be sad about that. So I believe we're going to be, actually, I don't know the page number for your packet. I forgot. All right, you all know. <laughs> so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be in 12 to the end. And our dear brother, Peter, this whole week has walked us through many different aspects of what it looks like to live out and work out our faith as sufferers, exiles, and the persecuted. And tonight, we come to an odd encouragement, an encouragement to not just endure suffering, but to rejoice in it. And I think he does this in a very gracious way. If you note at the beginning of verse 12, he starts this passage off with beloved. He's going to invite you in, say, beloved, come close. Beloved is a way to say, dearly loved one, come close and listen to the encouragement that I have to say. Now, to help all of you understand some of the dynamics of this encouragement, I'm going to read some stories from a book called Jesus Freaks. This is a book of martyrs and the persecuted. It shares the stories of people who have gone through extreme persecution, some to just pain of imprisonment or pain of loss, and others to the full extent of persecution to death. And I think this is going to help us understand some of what Peter has to share with us tonight. So I will start with a story of a man named Probius. Probius was around in the Roman Empire circa AD 250, and this is his testimony. Probius was whipped until the blood flowed, then laden with chains and thrown into prison. A few days later, he was brought out and commanded to sacrifice to the heathen gods. He knew that he would be tortured and killed if he refused. Still, he courageously said, I come here better prepared than before, for what I have suffered has not only strengthened me in my resolution, I, I ask you, employ your whole power upon me, and you will shall find that neither you, nor the emperor, nor the gods you serve, nor the devil, who is your father, shall compel me to worship idols. Probius was sent back to further torture and eventual death by the sword. I read this and I have to ask, how in the world could somebody endure that, endure being whipped, thrown in prison, and come back and say to his persecutors, employ your whole power on me, I will not bow down to your gods. He comes back more exuberant about his faith than when he went away. Peter has some answers for us. So with that said, let's pray and then we'll read our scripture. Father, as we dive into this strange encouragement, I just ask that you would help everyone in this room, including me, have an open heart and an open mind and open ears to hear your truth. And if there is anything objectionable in us to your truth, I pray that you would do away with it. Help us to see what your word says is a greater truth than our own, and it is worth adopting, and it is worth rejoicing in. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, join with me, starting in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but 
Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I don't know if you caught it, but right out of the gate in this section... Peter says something very odd. He says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know about you, but I don't often think of fiery trials as normal. I can think of one time, as Caleb said, I'm a woodworker. So I was out in my shop, I was doing some woodworking, and I was cutting through a piece of material, and as I cut through the material, the blade pinched and shattered, and a piece of that blade shot into my leg. I was surprised. <laughs> there was another time as a teenager, my friend and I were jokingly playing as knights. He picked up a metal pipe and threw it like a spear at a tree. It just so happened to hit the tree just right that it spun back in the air right at my face. And I thought, this is strange. And then it hit me in the face. And it hurt. Now, I don't think anyone in their right mind would say, oh, you, that should be normal. Unless I was talking to an experienced woodworker, and he would say, oh, yeah, any time that you try and cut like that, like what you did, the blade is always going to pinch. He would say, no, that's, that's normal, what happened to you, because you kind of did it to yourself. And if I was talking to my mom and told her exactly what my friend and I were doing, she'd be like, I would expect an ER visit out of that, which is exactly what happened. See, Peter is coming to us as an experienced Christian. He's coming to us and he's speaking out of trials that he has personally endured. And he seeks to impart wisdom to his audience. And this wisdom is that as followers of Christ, you can expect to face insults for your faith. You can expect to face persecution, potentially even exile. You can expect that suffering and fire trials will not be strange or surprising, but rather, they will be the norm. They will be ordinary. So he's gonna help direct us and direct his audience to reorient what is normal. He's going to say, what is normal for you as a Christian is the fiery trial. Now we have to ask, Peter, on what authority can you make these claims? Who are you to tell these Christians who are dispersed, these exiles, that this fiery trial is the norm? Well, I think we actually have evidence of it in our own scripture. We can go back and read the history of Peter's life up until this point. 
We can read about his experiences in the Gospels. We can read about his experiences in Acts. And so let's take a moment and just look through this. First, let's go all the way back to the Gospels. Peter is a disciple of Jesus Christ himself. He walked and talked with Jesus while he was on earth, and he heard him speak. And Nick actually made mention of this this morning. Peter would have been in the presence of Jesus when he made this declaration. This is in John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So Peter is speaking in in this mouthpiece kind of way where he's like, I'm just repeating what I've heard. Jesus himself told me that we can expect this to be the norm. We can expect that as servants and followers of Christ, persecution will come because they persecuted our master. Not only did he hear Jesus say it, he watched Jesus walk it out. He watched Jesus be mocked. He watched Jesus go to trial. He watched Jesus be hung on a cross and crucified. He watched all of the sufferings of Christ. That could only serve to affirm what Jesus had spoken to him. Jesus not only spoke it, but he proved it to be true. And what follows next is that he experienced this himself. As soon as the gospel concludes, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all conclude, Jesus ascends to heaven. Acts 1 picks up following the story of Jesus' continued work through the disciples. And it is only two chapters in before Peter begins his public ministry. And as soon as he begins his public ministry, he begins to be publicly persecuted. The very first preaching of the gospel by Peter in Acts 2, there are men in the crowd who say, this dude is drunk off his rocker and it's only 9 a.m. He's mocked. You continue on and it's only two chapters later, he's preaching and he's arrested and then threatened to stop preaching about Jesus by his very own religious leaders. You move along one chapter later, he's still at it, he's still preaching, and he's arrested again. And not only arrested, but this time he's beaten. And this goes on and on. You read the story of Acts and you will read the story of those who are persecuted and endure trial for preaching the gospel. Peter seems to have spent a decent amount of time being insulted, displaced, imprisoned, and beaten and mocked for professing Christ. I think it is safe to say when he says, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, he has some credibility. He watched, not only did he experience himself, but he watched others walk through this. He watched his fellow apostles walked through this, and he watched those that he brought to faith go through this. He watched his very own church suffer. 
If suffering is ordinary for the follower of Christ, what good is it to know this? Just like, Peter, why bring this up? Like, couldn't you just let me continue on in my ignorance and just be surprised? Does Peter want us to wallow in an inescapable, unpleasant truth? No. I think his communicating to to these churches that this is the ordinary Christian life. The fiery trial is something that you will live in while you are on earth. When he communicates this, he communicates an encouragement. An encouragement in the form of communicating solidarity. And solidarity just means that you have like people around you. You have people coming around you in the same cause, in the same understanding. It's kind of like that moment when you've met that person who does that weird thing that you do, and you're like, oh, I'm not the only one who does this. I'm not the only one who dips fries in their Frosty. I'm, I was standing up there at the climbing wall today, and there was a conversation about being afraid of heights, and several of the people there were like, oh yeah, I'd never go up there. It's like you find normalcy in the things that are common amongst you. And here, we find an encouragement in that you are normal if you have experienced the fiery trial as a Christian. I can remember when I first started to believe the gospel. I was in middle school. And, you know, the guy who was teaching me the gospel was telling me, like, okay, now that you have an understanding of who Jesus is, you need to go share this with people. And I was excited. I wanted to go share with my friends. So I returned to my school that year, and I was you know, so on fire just to preach and teach the gospel to my friends. And we all know what middle schoolers are like, so we all know that this story does not have a happy ending. Because as I'm telling people, hey, you should believe in Jesus because he is great, they're just like, you're weird. In fact, you're not weird, you're just, you're like a freak. And so I went from having lots of friends to being bullied, to being outcast. And as I experienced this, I didn't have anybody telling me, this is the normal experience of the Christian. And my response was, I must be doing this wrong. I felt shame. So friends, as you walk around this world and you profess Christ to others and you feel like an outcast, you find that others treat you like a freak. You are mocked, despised, and cast out of social circles. Take this encouragement. This is normal for the Christian life. Okay, okay, let's take a breather. That was kind of heavy. So we've, we've come to a point where we can kind of make sense of Peter's admonishment to count suffering and fiery trials as ordinary. What happens when we read on just to the next line? All right, so in 13 we have, but. All right, Peter's gonna turn us around. He's gonna give us some good news. But rejoice, all right, in so far as you share Christ's suffering. 
Did I read that right? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Okay, okay, let's read on. That you may also rejoice. All right, rejoice. I'm back with you. And be glad. All right, all right. When his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Hmm. Okay, I, I thought the first line was strange. Now, Peter, you've gone off the deep end. How in the world am I going to rejoice in my suffering? How in the world am I going to count insult as blessing? I'm no longer surprised at the trial. Great. Thanks, Peter. But I am surprised at this. I could understand if he said, but just patiently endure. You'll make it through life. Just hold out a little longer. But instead, he actually steers you completely around to say, rejoice in this. He's asking his audience to recenter their joy on something crucial. See, when I was a teen and that pipe hit me in the face, even though a parent would have said, oh yeah, I'd expect two boys playing with a pipe to end up injured. I don't think there'd be a parent in the room at seeing my bloody face would say, all right, praise God for that. And that's because as has been discussed all week long, there's a difference between pain and the suffering that Peter has been sharing about. We see that there is something about this suffering that is special. And did you catch it in verse 13 that it says, insofar as you share in Christ's suffering? I want you to underline that word, share. That word indicates to us what kind of suffering we are looking to rejoice in. So let's, let's delve into that. What were Christ's sufferings? Because we're told that this, this suffering we're rejoicing in, it, it has something in common with Christ's suffering. So we really have to understand what did Christ suffer and what were the ends of his suffering so that we can fully come into rejoicing in this suffering. Well, to start, when you read the Gospels, Jesus comes to earth as the Son of God. And people denied that. They said, you're not the son of God, you're the son of the devil. He was rejected by his own people. Jesus was born Jewish. And who were the people who sent him to be crucified? The Jewish leadership. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying about the most crucial moment of his life. And he asks his disciples, come pray with me. And they all fall asleep. Not long after that, people come to arrest Jesus. And these men who have just been sleeping see this group of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus and they scatter. His very own disciples can't even stay awake to pray with him 
and they can't even stick by him when it comes to his trial. On the subject of his trial, the Son of God submitted himself to a flawed, oppressive earthly authority in which witnesses came up and gave false testimony about him that was proven false, and yet, and yet the governor still convicted him guilty. The words of his testimony were thrown back in his face as he hung on the cross. They said, if you are the son of God, ask God and he will take you down from there. And as he was going to the cross, he was beaten, mocked, spit on, and eventually had nails driven through his hands, all as an innocent man. To what ends did he suffer these things? This is the next crucial question we have to ask as we try to understand sharing Christ's sufferings. Because it's not only that we join with him in the suffering part, but it's that we are also joining with him to the ends of what his suffering pointed to. And Peter has brought us along with this idea throughout the, the previous chapters. We see it in chapter two. Here's the ends of Christ's sufferings. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And then in chapter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus' sufferings had the ends of a trade. That he would trade this church's sins and sufferings, that he would trade your sins for his righteousness. So you, believer, as you walk out this faith, as you walk out your salvation, and you endure these sufferings that are normal, as you preach the gospel, know that as you have the ends to do just like Christ did, as you have the ends to make his name known so that people might be able to trade their sins for his righteousness, that is what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. And that is why we can rejoice in it. Because the very thing that happened to you, you are doing for others. But it doesn't stop there because he says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory comes. That if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you know what this means? It means that in your sufferings, he's saying you have a proof of faith. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying that as you are insulted for proclaiming Christ, for living this out, as you are suffering, experiencing fiery trial, know that it points to the fact that the spirit of glory rests in you, that you have salvation in Christ, that you are his I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly affirming.
as you shared in the mission of Jesus and in the face of opposition, you will have said, I will not bend a knee and worship anyone else. It is proof that I bend the knee only to Jesus. It's in that moment that Jesus says, you are my servant. You are experiencing persecution like I did. The world is hating you like they did to me. My glory rests on you. I don't know if any of you have taken the time to read The Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien, but there's a moment in the second book. It's an epic moment, and I think it relates to what's being said here. There's a moment where, I'll make it simple, there's a bad army and there's a good army, and the good army has been cornered in this fortress. They have no escape and they have no resources. They are forced to face the enemy in this moment. They are forced to face a long battle of attrition. They have no reserves, no one to, to resupply them. And so they desperately fight on for a day, a night, a day, and a night. And they are losing friends. They are losing numbers. They are suffering. They're suffering fatigue. They're suffering uh, from you know, not having food in the fort. And then on the third day, this grand wizard shows up on top of a hill with a huge army of reinforcements. And the entire group that is in the fortress says, yeah, we're saved. He's come. He's done as he's promised and he's going to wreck the evil army. He's going to wipe them out. And that's exactly what happens is the wizard's army comes down and completely wipes out the evil army. This is the moment that Peter is pointing to. He's trying to get the Christian's mind to think about rejoicing and being glad when his glory is revealed. He's pointing to a time in the last days. He's actually been noting this all along. You can follow this back in chapter 1. You see it in verse 5. Faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Chapter 1, verse 7. Result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on and says also in 117. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Sorry. That one, there's a slight connection. He's pointing to an end time where not only Christ is revealed, but his father is also revealed as a judge. Goes on in 2, close to the end, 2.23, entrust himself, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 22 in chapter 3, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's all pointing to this moment when Jesus is revealed in glory. And he's saying, Christian, tether yourself to that moment in time. Because that's the moment when the wizard shows up and he makes all things right. That's the moment that you have been suffering for. That's the moment that you can rejoice in. 
So friends, you can recenter your joy in the midst of suffering because you know that your suffering is according to the glorious truth that Christ is all in all. That you have nothing else to bend your knee to and that you will hold out until his revelation at the end of time. So that means for all of you, in the moments where you stand up for your faith, maybe it's in class, and your professor mocks you, you can rejoice because you are in Christ. It means that when you return home and tell your parents of your newfound faith and they dismiss you, you can rejoice. You are in Christ. When your roommate avoids you and speaks behind your back about how much of a freak you are, you can rejoice. You are in Christ. And when your friends walk away and turn their backs on you, feeling that you have become fanatical or maybe have even joined a cult, you can rejoice. You are in Christ. And at the coming of Christ in the end time, you will have cause to rejoice because you have placed your faith in the only one worthy of it. But what about the professor, your family, your roommate, those who are on the opposing side? What do we make of them? And this is actually where Peter goes next. He says in 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter asks a question to kind of shift our focus. So he's reoriented our normal. He's re-centered our joy. And now he's going to ask us to refocus our labor. And in a way, it seems a little odd that he's taking this turn towards judgment. What about judgment? But as I've just read through a couple of those passages throughout the, the book of Peter, you can tell it's been on his mind the whole time. The father who judges justly. And here... He says, judgment begins at the household of God. His mind is to, again, tether the reader to a moment in time in which Jesus is revealed and the Father is going to act as a just judge. I don't know about you, but I've had a few experiences meeting judges. I've had a few run-ins with the law. I'm not going to talk about those, but... It was a scary thing because you go and you, you know that there is either evidence for you or evidence against you and you're hoping that you have a just judge who is going to, to weigh the evidence properly. So judgment can be a scary thing unless by evidences we can be proven innocent. And as I've just declared, Peter's given us great evidence to prove that we have faith. Saying, as you share in Christ's sufferings, you can rejoice in his glory being revealed because you will be counted with him. You will be counted on his side. 
But what about the other side? You know, as he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. Now enter into the joy of your master. You have endured trials. You have endured suffering. Join me in glory. What about, like I said, the professor that mocks you? What about the roommate who abandons you? What about the friends who turn on you? What of them? It's the very question that Peter is asking. He says, for if, it be, if judgment begins with us and we are found to be associated with Christ in glory, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? See, he's, he's painting a picture of this judgment scene. And so you and I, we will, we will get to that judgment day. We will get to that moment where the judge says, okay, give me an account of your life. And moment by moment, we will walk through how we have handled the time that the Father has given us. So for me, when I stand before the Father, I will say, you know, he'll ask me, what did you do with your life? And I'll say, well, I, I put my faith in Christ. And Jesus will be sitting there on the throne of grace and he, sit, he will say, yes. It's my hope. I am placing my hope in that he will say yes. Because the, all the questions that follow will be tough ones. How did you treat my people? And I will have to say, I abused them, Father. I did not handle them well. There were moments in my life that I used your gifts against them. I used my intellect to belittle people. And Jesus will sit there on the throne of grace and he will speak to the Father and he will say, Father, that is covered by my blood. And then he'll say, go on. And I will have to say, Father, I've used people as objects as I have viewed pornography. And Jesus will sit there and he will say, Father, that is covered by my blood. And I will say, Father, I've used my time idly. That one summer between sophomore and junior year, I played way too much Minecraft. And Jesus will sit there and he will say, that too, covered by my blood. Praise Jesus that he covers everything. And he goes before the Father to state that it is covered by my blood. But for the non-believer, for the ungodly, the sinner who shows up and the Father asks them, so how did you handle the time on earth that I gave you? And they reply, well, I did a couple of good things. I think I did more good things than bad things. Does that count? Friends, it will be a scene like this image. There will be an all-powerful analyzing eye beaming down on a person who is naked and exposed and has nothing to cover them. Jesus' blood is not going to shield them from anything. They will have no rock, no scrap of anything to get behind this judgment that is coming for them. And when they try and cover themselves with their good works, Jesus Christ is gonna sit there on the throne of grace and it is going to be a deafening silence. 
there will be nothing to cover them. And friends, I plead with you, if you are here today and you do not know what's going to happen in that moment, I plead with you, put your faith and trust in the salvation that Christ has worked on the cross. Because you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be, at the end of time, standing before God, having no evidence for you. Because Peter knows that the only evidence that counts for us in that moment of judgment is the blood of Christ. And he is pleading with anyone who would claim Christ that while you still walk this earth, consider the plight of the ungodly. Consider the fate of your professor who mocks you. Because he says, in application to these things, it comes in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Elliot Clark talked about what it looks like to do good on this earth. It looks like honoring people and respecting people and hearing and listening to them. And even when they revile you, don't revile in return. By your good works, create opportunities to preach the gospel. That is your good work. You must have a refocused labor to know the ends of those who are against you, to know the ends of the persecutor who comes at you. I have another story to share with you. It's a story of a guy named Richard Wormbrand. Comes from Romania uh, around 1945 when Romania is, is going to transform into a communist government. And they, they have this session where they invited a bunch of politicians and a bunch of pastors to come together, and they were basically baiting the pastors to come and say that communism and Christianity are one and the same. And if you don't know, they're not. Richard Wormbrand is sitting there, and he's agonizing, and his wife says, are you going to let this stand? Are you not going to speak up for the name of Christ knowing that communism is actually not at all the same. In fact, it's quite contrary to the gospel. And so heeding his wife's counsel, he gets up and begins to preach the gospel of God. And the politicians, they try to shut him down, and yet he goes on. They shout at him, and the whole crowd starts cheering the pastor, the pastor, the pastor, because they want what he has. They crave what he's preaching. And eventually, they you know, unplug the mic, they pull the cord on him so that he can no longer speak about Jesus. This is the testimony of the following days that come after this. On Sunday, February 29th, 1948, Pastor Wormbrand was on his way to church when he was kidnapped by a small group of secret police. He tells what happened next. I was led to a prison 30 feet beneath the earth where I was kept in solitary confinement. For years, I was kept alone in a cell. Never did I see sun, moon, stars, flowers. Never did I see a man except the interrogators who beat and tortured me. Never did I have a book, never a bit of paper. After many years, when I got the chance to write again, I could no longer even remember how to write a capital D. 
To make the feeling of isolation worse, the prison was kept completely silent. Even the guards had cloth shoes so that their steps could not be heard. When we first put in, when I, when we were first put in solitary confinement, it was like dying. Every one of us lived again his past sins, his neglect of duties. We all had unimaginable pain in our hearts, thinking that we had not done our utmost for his highest, for the one who had given his life for us on the cross. I was in the depths of remorse and pain when suddenly the wall of the jail began to shine like diamonds. I've seen many beautiful things, but never have I seen the beauties which I have seen in the dark cell beneath the earth. Never have I seen such beautiful heard such beautiful music as on that day. The King of Kings, Jesus, was with us. We saw his understanding, loving eyes. He wiped our tears away. He sent us words of love and words of forgiveness. We knew that everything which had been evil in our lives had passed away, had been forgotten by God. Now there came wonderful days. The bride was in the arms of the bridegroom. We were with Christ. We didn't know we were in prison. Sometimes when we were beaten and tortured, we were like St. Stephen, who while they threw stones at him, did not see his murderers, did not see the stones, but saw heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. In the same way, we didn't see the communist tortures. We didn't see that we were in prison. We were surrounded by angels. We were with God. We no longer believed about God in Christ and angels because the Bible verses said it. We didn't remember Bible verses anymore. We remembered about God because we experienced it. With great humility, we can say with the apostles, what we have seen with our eyes and, and what we have heard with our ears, what we have touched with our own fingers, this we tell to you. After years of solitary confinement, we were put together in huge cells, sometimes with 200 or 300 prisoners in each cell. I will not tell you the whole truth because you could not bear to hear it. But this I will tell. Christian prisoners were beaten, then tied up on crosses for four days and four nights without interruption. The communists then stood around them, jeering and mocking, look at your Christ, see how beautiful he is, what fragrances he brings from heaven. Then they kicked the other prisoners, forcing them to kneel down to adore and worship the besmeared living crucifix. Then worse times came, the times of brainwashing. Anyone who has not passed through brainwashing can't understand what torture is. From five in the morning until 10 in the evening, 17 hours a day, we had to sit perfectly straight. We were not allowed to lean or rest our heads. To close our eyes was a crime. 17 hours a day, we had to hear communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Nobody, nobody believes Christ anymore. Nobody believes Christ anymore. Give up. Give up. Give up. For days, weeks, and years, we had to listen to this. Finally, the worst came. Communists torture those who believe in God with red-hot iron pokers, with rubber truncheons, and with sticks, with all kinds of methods, and Christians were tortured by the communists. And then the miracle happened. When it was at the worst, when we were tortured as never before, we began to love those who tortured us. Just as a flower, when you bruise it underfoot, rewards you with its perfume, the more we were mocked and tortured, the more we pitied and loved our torturers. 
Then he asked, Pastor Wormbrand, how can you love someone who is torturing you? His reply, by looking at men not as they are, but as they will be. I could also see in our persecutors a Saul of Tarsus, who is a future Apostle Paul. Many officers of the secret police to whom we witnessed became Christians and were happy to later suffer in prison for having found our Christ. Although we were whipped as Paul was, in our jailer we saw the potential of the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. We dreamed that soon they would ask, what must I do to be saved? It was, a prison that we found, it was in prison that we found the hope of salvation for the communist. It was there that we developed a sense of responsibility toward them. In communist prison, the idea of a Christian mission to the communist was born. We asked ourselves, what can we do to win these men to Christ? The gates of heaven are not closed for the communist, neither is the light quenched for them. They can repent like everyone else, and we must call them to repentance. Only love and the message of Christ can change the communist and the terrorist. Friends, in Richard Wormbrand's story, we see the truth of what Peter displays for us. We see a man who walks through suffering, walks through the fiery trial, and he comes out on the other side considering the plight of those who are ungodly and sinners. We must do the same. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We, as those who know Jesus, can trust the faithful creator. Peter uses those terms specifically and intentionally to draw our minds to the fact that God started all the way back at the beginning of creation and has been working ever since to redeem his creation. He is the faithful creator who has worked all of time for these Christians and for you, Christian. Entrust your soul to him while doing good. Do this when you encounter the hardship with your roommate. Do this when you encounter the hardship with your parents as you return home. Do this whenever you encounter an enemy of the gospel. Consider entrusting your soul to a faithful creator while honoring the persecutor. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and glory for the hard words of Peter that he calls us to a greater truth. And I just pray that as I asked earlier, you would just topple over any inhibition to this message. That you would help us accept these words as truth and that you would help us live them out. You would help us to not fear the persecutor, but instead love them. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.